welcome to Weekly Review with Roman. Today, it's Friday, January 4th, 2019. Happy New Year if you celebrate the New Year and all of that. I was not here last week, so big thanks to Pam for uh, stepping in and playing a previous episode. I meant to be here. I was a little bit under the weather and couldn't quite be here, and that's quite all right. I was planning to do a good things that actually happened in 2018, and there were there were a lot of strikes that happened and other positive events that took place. So I wanted to like just focus on that as a reminder that there are positive things that are happening and a lot of folks doing a lot of really important work that, and that have been doing it for a very long time. So unfortunately, we were unable to do it. However, it was I have to admit it was nice to have a little bit of time off, a nice little break. Today on the show, it's somewhat planned. We may or may not have guests in person and or calling in. Uh, I will be here. I'll be playing some music. Start off with the B-52s, and I think subconsciously, well, running a little bit late as per usual on Fridays, and sometimes I have I pick out the music ahead of time, and there's a two playlists that I have in my mind of other songs I'd like to play, other artists I'd like to play, and if I don't have a chance to go through it ahead of time, I have to pick what I'm feeling in the moment, and I felt like playing the B-52s, and I think that goes back to New Year's 1990. I believe they played on some television New Year's event, and I remember my father saying, hey, I think you'll like this band, and I was like nine, (laughs) and uh, I did like them, and I do like them. So thinking back to New Year's 1990, (laughs) quite a while ago, when I first, to my knowledge, heard the B-52s. Okay, so we're broadcasting live in San Francisco, and we're on Ohlone land, and I mentioned that. I've been wanting to mention that the past few months that we've been on the air as a reminder of the land that we're on. And it's important to understand history, especially when a lot of it is not taught and or not talked about or misinformation is taught in schools and or by media, politicians, etc. There's a lot of... It seems like one really has to dig to find what what actually is the truth and or listen to some voices that are not amplified as as often as they should be. So (sighs) wanting to acknowledge that. And I'm going to go into playing a documentary because I'm still clearly getting my words together. I'm wanting to speak more slowly and clearly, and I'm still waking up a bit. I'm also coffee-free for three weeks or so. I don't know how this happened. I used to drink coffee every day. I like it a lot. And I made the mistake of having a very large cup of coffee in the afternoon a few weeks ago. And it's not good for insomnia to drink coffee late at night, for me anyway. So it's like, oh, maybe I'll hold off for a little bit. And for some reason that when I decide, oh, I'm going to stop doing something for a little bit, it ends up taking quite a while. So I'm not quite caffeinated this morning. And perhaps that explains the the flow of the show. Anyway, I am waking up. I am here. I am present. I really do appreciate folks for listening in. Perhaps it's your first time listening in. Perhaps you've listened before. Thanks for coming back. I can't guarantee I won't get angry during the show, especially if we bring up news items and things that are happening in the world and people in positions of power who make life difficult. However, there will also be some really positive things and information that we can share and grow on, etc. 
So I wanted to start off by playing a documentary that I uh, uh, was shown recently. And folks can find it on YouTube. So you're welcome to listen to the audio now. And you can also watch the, the video on YouTube. We've posted it on the weekly review page, which you can get to by going to Evil Facebook, which is actually Facebook, but I still call it Evil because I know there's a lot of good that comes of it. And also just, I mean, if oh, I, I try not to think, well, what if, what if, because then we could keep on going back further and further and further and what ifs, but it's if folks were more community minded and weren't bootlickers, then maybe Facebook would be a much different place. Anyway. Uh, that's where our, that's where our, we, we share our news articles. If you go to facebook.com forward slash weekly rev, I've been taking some time off social media and I have to say it's been great for my mental health. I recognize that for some folks it can be helpful. Some folks can be harmful. Some folks, a combination of both. I feel like for me it, it is, I find a lot of information that way connected to a lot of folks and I really appreciate it. And at the same time, the, the week or so when I wasn't checking it at all, I felt great. So I am going to continue to see what I can do to monitor my usage. The show is not about me. It's about presenting news and information. So without further ado, this is Mawekma Ohlone Tribe Back from Extinction, and you can find this on YouTube. It's about 32 minutes long, and it was published by Mawekma Ohlone, and Mawekma is spelled M-U-W-E-K-M-A. So I will get everything all set up here and we will begin uh, playing this documentary. And this is from 1994. The Mawekmas are different from any other cultural race. Um, we, uh, for example, we have a, uh, a history of 10,000 years old. Our holy lands we still reside on. Our people in uh, that call themselves the, the Moekmas, the East Bay uh, families, have never ever uh, left their lands. They have um, made it a, a way of life to migrate within their own Aboriginal lands. And the difference is they didn't migrate into California or into the Bay Area. They have always been here for generation after generation. I can remember being in school and saying, oh no, all the Ohlone's are dead. There's no such thing. And I hope to God that if I ever have children that my kid doesn't sit in class and be told by uh, an educated person that they don't exist.
highway construction at the junction of highways 101 and 85 in San Jose, California, has led to the location of an Ohlone Indian burial ground over 2,000 years old. In the 1920s, the Mwekma Ohlone tribe of the San Francisco Bay region had been declared extinct for all practical purposes by prominent anthropologist Alfred Grober. They no longer existed as an aboriginal people. Yet living members of the Mwek Maloney tribe now walk behind the bulldozers monitoring their progress so they can mark the grave sites before the earth movers destroy them. Whenever there is, is work going on in anywhere in the state of California and that uh, which may uh, run into some prehistoric burials, that is, burials of the indigenous peoples, uh, there's a requirement that those burials be treated uh, archaeologically, respectfully, and, and according to the needs of the Native Americans that are the, the descendants of these people. Before they had monitors, e even though we had the law that says if you came across a, a burial that you had to stop and inform certain people, the fact is that it's expensive. And so in many cases, construction people or contractors, whatever, would avoid, either they just ignore the fact that they came across the burial. Despite past negligence by freeway contractors, the Mawek Maloney have worked out a cooperative relationship with these highway construction crews. The operators that use the scrapers and the graders are very sensitive. They're looking out along with us looking for the burials and the mortars and pestles and any other objects of Indian. We have uh, already described to them what to look for and they are looking out for it. Um, they go real slow, we can, we can follow them, we stake it, they don't mind going around us when we're digging out there, so everything's pretty cool. We're walking behind the tractors monitoring and looking for bones, and when we spot bones, um, we call the, uh, our archaeologist, the one uh, that works with us, and uh, she comes and identifies the bones, whether it's Indian bone or animal bone. The Mawek Maloney participating in the excavation of their ancestors' remains are one of the first Indian tribes to act as their own archaeologists. In the process, they are discovering who they were and who they are today. They are laying claim to their heritage, yet they are also doing much more, for they are in the process of seeking federal reinstatement and recognition that they still exist as a tribe, that the Ohlone did not vanish with the bones they have uncovered. Excavation of their ancestral remains elicits a broad range of reaction from members of the Mwekma tribe. I have mixed emotions here about this. I, uh, I don't like having to do this, but it has to be done because they've been disturbed already. I hope that uh, when we put them back in the ground in this area that they will be put back and never, never again disturbed. When we have uncovered the uh, uh, animal remains, uh, it, it's 
it, it's neat to know that, that back in, in that culture also that, that the animal played an important part, just as animal play still plays an important part. Maybe not like some people have birds, cats, dogs. These people had what? Otters. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the deer that we found. Right. The dog. The wolf. And it's just, they still played respect to the animals. Wondrous thing was when they found the uh, one burial with the the beads and uh, the pendant. Oh, this remember, that here. was that was that was really something to see. And the teeth on these people—they oh, have no they cavities. Are just beautiful teeth. I mean, if we could trade our teeth in for <laughs> those <laughs> teeth, beautiful teeth. <laughs> we probably eat more than we already have. <laughs> to me, it's been an honor at my age. To be doing this, I have seen a lot of corpus in my young days when I was in the service would come and do this. I never dreamed that I would one day I'd be doing this to another human being discovering all this bones. So I don't know. I feel thrilled, I don't know, real full of joy doing it. I don't fear nothing on, on this, what I'm doing. Like I talk to him, if I disturb one of the little bones, tell him I'm sorry, because that's the best I can do. The Mawek Maloney have hired two archeologists, Laura Jones and Alan Leventhal, to help them learn the excavation process and interpret what they have found. It's about, I'd say, three and a half feet below the burials. Three and a half to four feet below the burials. But you remember that other burn feature we had? There was baked clay, you know, a foot and a half, two feet thick. Right. And here we just have this really thin lens of it. Anthropology students and faculty from San Jose State University, located nearby, have been invited by the tribe to visit the site. What can you see up there in the corner? The right scapula, right? A little bit of the clavicle. All right. And what do we have over here? Well, the left arm was just raised up, like almost like it was trying to lift it up. All right. Well, here's the left arm. Mm-hmm. What's this over here? Well, the sternum, maybe? Or the, the rib cage in the front? Well, there's the radius over here. Oh, well, from what? On which side? The other side, yes. Yeah, it has to be. No, this is left arm. This the right arm coming this, down. This is the right humerus and the right arm, right. As the Mawek Maloney have become involved in the excavation process, a new relationship has developed between themselves and the anthropologists who once controlled access to their heritage. Anthropologists at one time helped play a significant role in declaring the Mawek Maloney extinct because the Ohlones they encountered were no longer culturally pure, but rather had been transformed by the impact of the missions. They also intermarried and lived in an urban environment. One of the major problems in the anthropological discipline, something that is now finally becoming um, a, a thing of the past, is this notion of pristine, untouched, or isolated tribal peoples. Um, particularly with respect to Native Americans, this has been a problem. Anthropologists search for the pristine, and anything that they find that doesn't fit into their fiction 
into their kind of fairy tale of what pristine, untouched, isolated peoples should be is disregarded or even worse, made into uh, a justification for declaring a tribal people extinct. This is what happened to the Muwekma and to the Ohlone people and to other Central Californian and other um, Pacific Coastal peoples, is that by the time anthropologists got to them, they no longer could provide the information that anthropologists wanted. And for that reason, peoples like the Muwekma were declared extinct, were marginalized in anthropology, um, and unfortunately, this played a part in their political marginalization. Les Field, one of several anthropological consultants to the Mowak Maloney, feels the implications of being declared extinct and therefore unrecognized means the Mowak Maloney are denied federal support in terms of land and other economic resources which other tribes receive. The political implications of being declared extinct have to do with the fact that the federal government never wanted to ratify any of the treaties that it was supposed to, supposed to sign, those treaties allocating a certain portion, something like 8.5 million acres of the state to Native American peoples. The federal government was unwilling to do this under pressure from the most powerful uh, political and economic in elites in the state around the time of statehood and during the latter half of the 19th century. So when you have anthropologists come in at the end of the 19th century saying this tribe is extinct, this tribe is extinct, this tribe is extinct. It provides an academic and, and professional kind of polished justification for denying people political and economic rights. The tribe was terminated by Superintendent L.A. Dorrington, an employee of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in 1927. However, the families were enrolled a few years later under the California Jurisdictional Act of 1928 as Costanoan Indians by the same bureau that terminated them. Landless and marginalized by the BIA, the families were still able to maintain ties with each other, which enabled them to survive as an identifiable group until today. Rosemary Cambra, tribal chair of the Mowak Maloney, feels that working to preserve the burial sites has enhanced the tribe's sense of identity and community. Many of us uh, just recently have begun to, to acknowledge and, and, and to befriend one another as second cousins, third cousins, and, and partially because of the burial issue. Uh, we all have a sense of belonging, being, and, and wanting uh, to, to unite as, as families. Um, and we all come from different lineages. So in many respects, if it wasn't for the, for the people of the past, we would not be communicating today as living people. Once the remains are uncovered, the Ohlone number the site. Then the remains are carefully identified and put into bags where they will stay until the construction project is finished and they can be reburied. There is also the possibility for further analysis of the remains in an archaeology lab at San Jose State University. This issue leads to a series of meetings as members of the Mawekma tribe and non-tribal Native Americans gather to debate and decide what will happen to the bones of their ancestors. 
Some non-tribal members do not want any further analysis of their ancestors' remains. But to allow it to go past the excavation and the reburial process, to me, seems like it's exploitation on my end. I don't know if it's being narrow-minded or not, but I really don't feel that any ex extended um, analysis or um, any more, uh, how would I say, trying to find out the mysteries of life. We all know that people were tortured at one time or another. We all know that we died. We all know that we're going to die ourselves. I, you know, I don't know whether that's going to help me understand what happened to my people. Other members of the tribe feel further analysis is a logical extension of the excavation process. When you start to actually work, there's some type of communication going on with you and that individual that you are excavating yeah. because you're doing it as just as delicately and with as much respect as you can. And, as, and when you can, and when you go down from one and you're already hitting almost a hundred, I mean, there are so many things that are going in your mind because we all found something different and it was like, well, come and see, you know, we all shared. And because of that sharing, it brought, it brought me to this level today to say, yes, I do want analysis because I want to know when I was working, well, why was that like that? Or why was this this way? Or, you know, the question started to evolve. And now I sit here and I say, yes, now I can go into the lab. I, I, you know, I'm being allowed. Okay, well, let's go in there and let's work. And now I see a whole new pattern again of, well, the questions will come as I start to work again, just like they did when you first started with the, with the removals. Ultimately, the Mawek Maloney, supported by representatives from neighboring tribes, voted to approve further analysis at San Jose State University. Yet the excavation process did more than teach the Ohlone about their own heritage. It brought them in contact with various state agencies who have had to approve their participation at each stage along the way. By acknowledging that the Mawek Maloney are capable of doing their own archaeology, these agencies have indirectly legitimated the existence of the Ohlone as an Indian people. The implications of, of Muwekma Ohlone people, the four generations of Muwekma Ohlone people who worked at the Highway 101-85 project, are a kind of step-by-step -step reversal of the whole process of disenfranchisement that we're studying right now. That disenfranchisement ended up with the extinction sentence. When Muwekma Ohlone people go to the archaeological excavation sites, sites and do the excavation and do the interpretation, they are removing that first major roadblock, i.e. they're laying claim to their past. They're saying, here we are, in the flesh, laying claim to our past by doing the excavation. By doing that, in cooperation and collaboration with public agencies like the Department of Transportation, State of California, the county, the city, they establish the professional relationships that make that laying claim to the past a highly politicized and political act. In other words, they are saying, we're here, we know about our past, we're finding out about our past, and we're doing so as a part of a political community. By doing that, they lay the foundation for federal acknowledgement because they establish their history and they do so in a publicly acknowledged context. In addition to their contact at the excavation site with Caltrans, the State Department of Transportation, 
the Mowak Maloney also became involved with the Santa Clara County Board of Supervisors because the excavation site took place within their jurisdiction and tax dollars were used for the analysis process. At a minimum, what our obligation was, was to respect the uh, history, culture, and religion of Native Americans who were citizens of our uh, county. And the obvious way to do that was to bring in Native Americans in our county into the process in a way that wasn't just window dressing, but real, that called the shots, that was important. And with that was uh, a requirement for uh, respect of, of tradition and of individuals. So we organized, and it was a, it was a partnership uh, between the county and, and local family. Uh, the monitoring that was important and the ability to um, to take control of the scene so that uh, the religious rights could be respected and not imposed or interfered with by outsiders because uh, we'd run into a situation where archaeologists were trying to say you know what should happen and it's really none of their business it's you know whose relatives are they not mine not the archaeologists it's it's just like I, I think I remember one board meeting saying you know would we allow this if it were you know a Catholic cemetery of course not the best method that's been developed by um, skeletal experts in the last hundred years is this piece of the body right here and there's one on each side and it goes through these gradual changes that um, have been uh, systematized to give us an indication of how old people are. In fact, Involvement of the Mawak Maloney in analysis of the remains of their ancestors helped change their relationship with San Jose State University. I feel very comfortable being at the university um, because I know that, that it's a partnership now. And, and this partnership is like you the scholar that has the knowledge and then like just uh, us being the Native American and just um, knowing that if I've got questions I can ask you you know with, with as far as like why is this bone like this or why is this like this and then for my part is like when we did the excavating excavations was that God you know what kind of life did this person have you know when you're sitting there thinking and you're looking out you know, and now you can come back and say, well, you know, how old was this person? Um, what kind of diseases were there? And, and they will be answered because they're right here in front of us now. No, and I'd like to respond uh, really uh, positively, you know, to that notion of partnership because maybe one reason that for the last 10 or 15 years we've been building the bridges but not as successfully as we have in the last year and a half or so is that there was an unequal uh, in a sense distribution of power an unequal sense of relationship if the university reached out to the Indian community it was like the university saying well you people need us and here we are but what actually happened here was the Indian community came to us as an equal and said, we need to work together. And yes, we may need you, but the university needs us too. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is why it's a partnership, because partnerships aren't 80% one side and 20% the other. Partnerships are 50-50. And I really have a very strong sense of that. And I think when you walk in here, you feel that way too. Yeah. You're not 
uh, second-class citizens on this campus. As uh, Ohlone family members have, have worked at the university, they have come to understand that uh, archaeologists and physical anthropologists aren't just grave robbers, that uh, while our perspectives are not always 100% uh, in agreement with, or maybe a better way to say it, 100% parallel to those of uh, the descendants themselves is that many of our interests are um, reinforcing to the kinds of things they want to know and many of the things they want to know are uh, collaborative and compatible with the kinds of uh, scientific studies that we at San Jose State are pursuing. Um, so the interaction particularly interaction once the excavations have been completed on this project where the family members have been here working on the archaeological materials, uh, watching us and, and in some cases helping with the analysis of the human skeletal material as well, uh, has helped uh, shatter some of the stereotypes. As the Mawark Maloney gain increasing recognition from various governmental bodies and agencies, as well as the general public, they help build a case for their federal reinstatement and acknowledgement. Yet their efforts to seek acknowledgement also face opposition from already recognized tribes who see the Ohlone's existence as a threat to whatever limited funds are now available to Indian peoples. The misperception um, that the pie is shrinking and that everyone should watch their own interest and that the interest of one tribe or the interest of federally recognized tribes are not the same as the interest of unacknowledged and terminated tribes. Personally, I feel that that's wrong and that's an error. I really think that the interest of California Indian tribes lies in gaining the most political power that they can gain. And the more California Indian tribal governments there are, the more the power is increased. Because each California Indian tribal government brings with it tribal resources, human resources, cultural resources, and all sorts of power and resources that should enrich the California Indian tribal community. It shouldn't take from it, it should enrich it. Lena Aoki, legislative aide to Senator Enoe of Hawaii, feels all California tribes will gain more political leverage in Washington by seeing each other as allies rather than competitors. To the extent that federally recognized tribes are located in a limited number of congressional districts, that limits their effectiveness, so to speak, of trying to push their issues forward in Congress. So the more congressional districts in California that have federally recognized tribes as constituents, the more powerful the voice of California Indian tribal governments can be. We chose a in a step in that direction, an intertribal recognition ceremony honors the Mawekma Ohlone. 
somebody who has contributed a lot and I don't believe has ever gotten the recognition that she has deserved uh, is uh, a woman that I have the honor of, of introducing, and that's uh, Rosemary Cambra. Rosemary is a member of uh, the Mwekma uh, Ohlone's uh, tribe. Uh, she has been active in, in San Jose much longer uh, than most of us uh, who, uh, who are here today. Uh, she has... very, very closely uh, with the city and the county, has taught us all a lot, not the least of which has been set, uh, to be more sensitive in how we uh, uh, treat those people who came before us. Uh, she has worked closely with the agency and the city on uh, seeing that people uh, whose remains had to be relocated were done so in a very uh, sensitive, proper way. And uh, uh, she has... Uh, become a friend of mine, uh, a woman that I have admired for a long, long time. And I believe we're real lucky, Rosemary, that you're a member of our community and uh, we are a member of your community. You came a long time before we did, 10,000 years ago. Uh, so it's my honor and privilege to get to introduce to all of you uh, Rosemary Cambra and thank her for her efforts. Thank you, Mayor. As I've been introduced, Rosemary Canberra, the chairwoman of the Mowek Maloney tribe, indigenous to this area. Believe it or not, it has taken 10,000 years to come to this very day of being acknowledged. And for me, it's a very important step, as well as for the mayor and for many other politicians. It is a time now to bridge all families, all cultures and all nations. If we don't do it here, we may look at another South Africa. So this is the beginning, and uh, we have a lot to continue to, to work on, but most of all, for the young children, for you that are present today from, from the schools, we want you to understand and to believe that we want to be your partner. Our children want to dance with you, not away from you, but with you. Two years after excavation of the remains of the Mawek Maloney ancestors, they are reburied under a nearby freeway. Meanwhile, living members of the tribe continue to seek official recognition that they still exist as a people.
and welcome back. That was the Mwekma Ohlone tribe back from extinction, and you can check out that documentary on YouTube. Also, for more information, please do check out muwekma.org, and that's M-U-W-E-K-M-A.org, and there's lots more information there. We're going to take a bit of a music break and be back with our guest in just a little bit. You're listening to the Weekly Review on Mutiny Radio. Stay tuned.
All right, and welcome back to Weekly Review. I am joined by Shanti Singh, who is the co-chair of the San Francisco DSA. Shanti, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Yay. So I've been following a lot of what the DSA has been up to this past year, especially being involved with there was the, the hotel worker strike and the DSA showing up for that, and then also with the Occupy ICE uh, activity as well yeah we've been we've been we've been doing a lot of stuff we have um you know we also we tried we not tried we did uh three ballot propositions this year so we were part of the coalition on prop c which was our city our home yeah um even some of our members we even were involved in the the old prop c with child free child care and stuff um but also the the two big ones that we really did like that we spearheaded were proposition f which is right to counsel for tenants facing eviction oh yeah and then the no on age campaign which was uh stopping uh, the police from having zero accountability over tasers. Uh, we didn't think we were going to beat them, but mm-hmm. we did by 20 points, and that was pretty That was pretty great. Um, but, of course, we just do a lot of base building and coalition work and stuff like that and supporting labor, occupying ICE, all of that good stuff. Yeah, well, it's, it's great when organizations have the people power to do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're 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 still we're still growing. Um, I think we got a little bit of a bump after Prop F. It, it's interesting. A lot of the the DSA membership bumps that like people get though, the different chapters get, it's often a lot of it's it's related to things that happen more nationally and not necessarily locally. Mm. Um, that's something we found. So, for example, we got a bump. We don't know if our bump was related to Prop F or winning, or whether it was Alexandria Ocasio Cortez winning because it happened at the same time. Yeah. Um, I know there was like a little bit of bump when some folks in DC DSA showed up at that restaurant and protested Kirsten Nielsen from Homeland Security. Um, But yeah, it tends to be related to that. So I don't, I don't know how much, I don't know how much our SF activities are creating bumps in membership, but I like to think that they are. Yeah, definitely. And I know there's also, there's the, the East Bay, uh, DSA, which is, I know it's different. Yeah. Dif- of, different organizing styles. Yeah. Um, I think they, I think we each have, they have, a, they're, they're slightly bigger than us, but you know, the East Bay is a, a bigger area than yeah. stuff. So I think we're both over a thousand members, I believe. Oh, okay. Or right about there or slightly above. Great. So what's, um, in the, is there anything in the works that's happening like currently that folks can plug into if they're interested in participating or Oh yeah, all sorts of all sorts of stuff. Um, One thing that I would really like to plug is um, we have a sort of a little task force, but we're organizing around a couple issues um, with allies in Bayview Hunters Point. Oh yeah, Um, specifically two big things. One um, is the Buds for Bayview campaign. So essentially, what's going on is I mean Bayview has you know. I think it receives something on the order of eight or ten percent of the city's homelessness funding, but I believe it has something like thirty percent of the city's homeless people, obviously majority black community. Um and, you know, the majority of homeless folks in San Francisco are black or a disproport incredibly disproportionate amount are. Um and they just haven't really received the funding or the resources or the attention that they need mm-hmm. and what they really want and they have the people to do it. Um there's a woman named Gwendolyn Westbrook who's been running a shelter called uh, a Mother Brown's, like a center. But you know, it they don't have the resources that they need and the city's not giving it to them, um, which is really shameful. So, you know, they, they have, there's so many, they're serving so many folks that there are people sometimes sleeping in chairs. Um, and there's been a community demand for a shelter that's yes. actually run by residents for the Bayview that actually has these extensive resources. And, you know, the city's had some talk about putting in some sort of navigation center there. But again, it's not, they don't want to factor in any sort of community demands and mm. community run shelter. Um so we're trying to support them and pushing that demand forward. Um, the other thing, of course, is the the huge scandal at the Hunters Point shipyard, 
which is, I mean, just a, just a turducken of problems. You know, you have the, the nuclear imperialism of having a bikini atoll tests and, and, and taking those ships to back to the shipyard to, to scrub down all this radioactive material. You have the gentrification aspect, of course, um, from the standpoint of, you know, they're, now there's a huge condo project, a ton of politicians and people have been like all the way up have been, the whole city has been invested in making this condo project happen with Lenara, which is this huge developer, Five Point. And, and you know, like no one from the city official side, the many city officials have been lying about it. Mm. Um, you know, that just came out in the Chronicle about saying it's completely safe. Obviously, oh. the, there is the Navy's involved, this contractor falsified soil samples, so it's still radioactive. But most importantly, the community has been, the community has been, dying of of mysterious cancers for decades and yeah. no one gave a shit until no one no one gave a shit until they put this fucking condo project here mm-hmm. which most of the communities it's it's there's some affordable units but always of course it's a fraction of the total right, right. so they've been selling this condo stuff and you know they've just been trying to make it not look like a big deal for so so fucking long until finally it's reached the point i think i heard that banks have stopped a few banks have stopped lending for like folks who want to buy homes there because they're like shit there's still radioactive stuff here but um really trying to bring that i mean that's like that's that's a huge uh, that should be the biggest news in the city like people should be talking about that every day it, it just it baffles my mind that that people aren't working on that so those are those are two big things i think dsa is really pushing on um in the new year and has been kind of trying to prepare for it and and meet up with folks and see what support we can provide to groups on the ground yeah yeah that's that's a lot for sure yeah, yeah. So. but we always have stuff going on i mean we have i think 20 committees or something oh like wow yeah what are what so what are what would different committees be so there would be like so um there's you know there's internal committees for people who just want to help out on like you know there's like a tech committee um you know there's an outreach or mobilizer committee that it, so that's that's all like sort of more internal organization but then on issue we have issue-based committees so housing justice which is like you know uh, mass incarceration and abolitionism and then um you know uh, environmental justice a homelessness committee um, we have a discourse committee. We have, yeah. So it's, 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 it's pretty, it's pretty broad. There's lots of places that you can plug in, but there's like basically issue based and we're always, we're always doing more stuff on all of those fronts. That's great. So that means that folks could kind of plug in and see which like area interests them the most, or maybe they have more experience or. Right. Right. Like if, you know, if you're interested in getting involved in immigration rights, we Mm -hmm. have the immigration rights, international solidarity group. We have a direct action working group. We have all of that stuff. So that's great. It's just good to have that. So you have like a core core groups of people planning stuff, but it's not it's not broken out where like people only do one thing or another yeah yeah, yeah i think yeah, also yeah. just i mean everything is connected and there's a, probably a lot of overlap as well oh yeah, yeah yeah exactly so you know there's a lot of for example with the baby hunters point thing like there's not there's not one committee doing that it's a right. housing issue it's an environmental justice issue it's an anti-racist issue it's um so yeah that that's an example there cool yeah yeah well and also just congrats on prop c that was like oh thank you uh i mean there are definitely a lot of different propositions that i think many of us were concerned about and working on and that was one that in particular was really i'm really grateful that that one passed yeah and that was i mean i mean again we were part of a really broad coalition but i know that a lot of dsa folks like i'm very grateful to them who really stepped up when we thought that it wasn't going to get enough signatures to get on the ballot in time Mm -hmm. And that was because of some really, frankly, fucked up shit that was going on down in in Mountain View. Um, So in my day job, I work at Tenants Together, which does rent control advocacy and organizing support for tenants unions across the state. Mm -hmm. So uh, we knew that in Mountain View, uh, these uh, the landlord lobby was trying to put get signatures on the ballot to repeal rent control. 
that they have there that we <sighs> were also that we helped pass in 2016. Yeah. Um. So, uh. So yeah, and I think Silicon Valley DSA was involved in trying to, to trying to fight them on that. But essentially, these landlords were paying all the signature gatherers in the Bay Area mm-hmm. like forty dollars per signature. Like usually, like four or five you can wow. pay. They're charging them forty dollars per signature to try to get this shit on the ballot. They didn't for 2018. Thankfully, they did get it for 2020. Unfortunately, Ugh. but um. But yeah, they managed to the the Silicon Valley DSA and the Mountain View Tenants Coalition stopped them. But in the meantime, we're up here trying to collect signatures for our city, our home, and all all these signature gatherers. Like, oh, fuck, I'm going to Mountain View. I mean, it makes sense. It's forty dollars a signature is like absolutely unheard of. So, uh, DSA really like stepped up and and gathered the signatures. But it was like a big campaign with lots of people in it. Um, there was a lot of there were a lot of pressure, you know, we applied a lot of pressure, I think, to to tech companies, mm-hmm. um, or rather, we're trying to spread the information to tech employees. So, yes. like, you know, we had folks standing in front of the tech offices at, like, Square and Stripe, and, you know, kind of explaining, mm-hmm. here's Prop C, do you know that your, yeah. your CEO, like, opposes it, is putting your company, that your company put money against it, like, yeah. that should not be allowed without the permission of the employees. Yeah. Like, you should fight for that, and then maybe you should get a union. Somehow they managed to fit this into a little little flyer quarter sheet so um yeah that was kind of like people were really involved in our campaigns and a lot of dsa members were some dsa members were even on the staff of that campaign um it was looking a little it was uh, you know that there was the whole benioff thing which i mean i know dsa was not going to be able to pay for a plane to fly around the sky so i guess that was yeah but um, it was kind of, it was a little bit like the way this got framed as tech billionaires versus tech billionaires kind of sucked, frankly, but it was, a, it was a really great campaign and, and it was cool to see such a broad coalition. And I, I think that it would have been, you know, it needed to secure, it, it could pass with a 50 plus one and got 60%, mm-hmm. but to be lawsuit proof, it would have had to have been two thirds right. and it was five points away. Uh. You know, definitely, if if the if the powers that be, if the folks like London Breed, Scott Weiner, David Chu, et cetera, uh, yeah, if those fucking guys had supported it, then you know, I'm pretty confident it would have just sailed right past that threshold too. Yes, yeah. So, uh, two questions. Going back, when you're talking with some of the folks who worked at the tech companies, were folks easily swayed um, by? Surprisingly, yes, I mean, in terms of what in terms of what I heard from from people who were doing that, uh, yeah, actually, um, I think a lot of folks just didn't know what was going on. Yeah, you know, I don't know how many people are going to go and try to like advocate for like a union or anything like yeah. that. Although, you know, hopefully there are folks like Tech Workers Coalition and mm-hmm. there are DSA members who belong to that who are trying to support that work more and more. But yeah, I think I think people just didn't know what was going on. But then when they said, "Oh, tax the richest companies," even then when they worked there, tax the richest companies to a little bit to like less than the Trump tax cut they got back to fund all this homelessness housing. I think it was pretty, it was pretty compelling. I, th- I think the majority of people just didn't, didn't have a clue that that was going on yeah. or that it was their boss right. doing it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then follow up in terms of, so it would, would have needed the two thirds vote in order to be law. proof. Yeah. So what's, do you have any sense of what's happening next down the line in terms of facing any lawsuits? Um, so I think, uh, there's definitely going to be one. Um, it was it was very <laughs> I, you know, like, I don't I can't ima- believe how tone deaf these people were but the the guy who was the spokesperson for um, 
for no on propsy who was like uh he was i think he was actually an aide to mark farrell when he was a supervisor surprise surprise there oh he hates homeless people who like yeah i know exactly yeah he's got the he's got that he's got that mark farrell vibe going um but he was like like he was like the next day he was so pissed he was like yeah we're never gonna see you're never gonna see a dime of that money blah 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 but they're actually collecting the taxes they're just keeping it in some kind of reserve Mm -hmm. um but this is the money hasn't been released yet but I think I don't know if she felt not I shouldn't say felt bad, but I think she felt that she might look bad all after, you know, she kinda had Mayor Breed kinda had egg on her face for yeah. opposing this deeply popular measure. Um, so I think she she said something about um or she asked the city attorney to, you know, like move forward with defending it. Um but, you know, I I I'm confident that it'll make it. Like, you know, I have faith that it'll make it. Um but you know it's gonna it's probably gonna be a while and I think you know Jenny Friedenbach who's the head of the Coalition on Homelessness said it best she was like when people asked her like the, the part that I had just mentioned where you know if it had had the support from the highest elected officials that it could have sailed past that yeah. like they said they, someone asked Jenny Friedenbach like what what she thought about that and she was like yeah well people are gonna fucking die like it's true <laughs> you know that that's that's a, that's the tragedy of it and but. I'm still I'm still really happy that it that it made it um, because I'm I'm never I'm never opt I'm like I I'm never optimistic in electoral work I'm just I think I'm just a skeptic by heart where yeah. I'm just like I don't know I don't know similar yeah and I like there was a quote recently that it just it doesn't matter who's elected it just might make it better for organizing right so it just depends on who's in office and what propositions have been passed and yeah yeah exactly. But yeah, I think it was a big ballot proposition year. We don't have, I, as DSA does not have right now any any future ballot propositions in the works at this moment. Um, I think we're taking a little breather, but mm-hmm. mostly focusing on a lot of the base building work we're doing, like tenant organizing and labor organizing and that's, all of that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah and we should uh, mention that we met in the labor organizing class at CCSF. Yes, so we did. Yeah. A big plug for the CCSF uh, labor and community organizing department. Yeah, yeah, California labor history. That was a that was a great class, and you should definitely take it next. Well, I guess it would be next fall, but there's lots more stuff in the labor and community studies. It's free thanks to Free City College. Hopefully, there's a, there is a ballot measure for nine for 2019 that is going to uh, basically determine whether the funding for Free City College for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has a letter yet, but you should definitely keep that in mind oh, and go yeah. out there and vote for that because I think it's for November. Uh, I'm not 100% sure, but uh, keep an eye out for that, because otherwise we're not going to have free city college. Yeah. And also, it's uh, folks can still register for spring classes. So if you check out CCSF, there's lots of different classes folks can take. So yep, any yep. listeners out there who are interested, uh, highly recommended. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So we can um, take a bit of a music break, or unless there's anything else right now that comes to mind super casual here uh i'll just keep on mentioning that forever okay um you're listening to the weekly review on mutiny radio and we'll be back in just a bit
welcome back. I am joined here by Shanti Singh. And uh, one topic I uh, thought we could discuss would be prison abolition. Yay. How do we how do we get there? Um, oh, man. So I want to preface this by saying that uh, I am not the prison abolition expert in DSA, although in SFTSA, although I very strongly believe in it, um, in the cause for prison abolition. It's one of the few things that National DSA has adopted as a policy, like as a priority, saying like we as an organization stand for that. We voted on that last year. Um, there are some folks who don't believe in that in DSA, but I think for the majority, uh, we do. And that's something that we felt strongly enough about, including, uh, also BDS, um, as something that we believe in and, and like as a, as a whole national org. Um, but yeah, it's been, I think, I think DSASF has been a pretty, always been a pretty vociferous, uh, proponent of prison abolition. And we've been having, you know, sort of more workshops and stuff to, to work with people on what that is and what that really means. But, you know, I think, um, <laughs> how to get there. That's a really, it's a really tricky question. Um, or not tricky question. It's such a, it's such a big question. Um, honestly, like, I, I think it's, it's something that's starting to pol- prison and police abolition yeah. is starting to make, it's starting to, the, the, the number one argument, you know, there's always the kind of, the, the most simplistic argument against, like, for example, when you ask, say, like, we should have Medicare for all, and someone says, how do you pay for it or something, you know, for prison abolition, in my experience, it's always been like, you know, well, what are you going to do with, like, rapists and murderers and stuff like that? And it's kind of like, it, or, you know, you're just going to have nothing, like, no system of, like, punishment at all, or, or like, you know, so the, the couple of things that I think, like, help, too, is, First of all, just saying uh, it's, it's a compelling argument. I think people are starting to see that more and more. It's like, oh, well, this system is not really designed to catch rapists and murderers, right? Um, especially from a, I think the the sort of like mainstream kind of like feminist, like more liberal consciousness. But the, you know, people getting even outraged about that, like that that Stanford guy who like got off like for, after three months for oh, raping Brock somebody, Turner, yeah. Brock Turner, et cetera. But I, one thing that I feel like I've noticed more and more is that that people are starting to see not just through like. Black Lives Matter and seeing police brutality in their faces on video in the news, etc. But, but also seeing more, um, also seeing that from like also the Me Too angle and you know the the sort of angle that like no one really like you can pretty much get away with anything if you're if you're like because of patriarchy because of like class like politics because of all of that. Um, so I, I think that's more. I don't know. I think there's more of a sort of a consciousness among like, you know, I I hear more again, this is totally anecdotal, but I definitely hear more sort of just being like, oh, yeah, like, you know, police don't like they're not there to actually mete out justice in any sort of real way or anything um, among among regular people. But I mean, yeah, it's um, (laughs) it's such a it's such a big question. I think the way that like, you know, us as a small group of socialists can do handle it is just trying to have that as our practice in terms of like how we evaluate all the the work that we do whether um on, whether it's like helping uh for example like let me thinking about projects that our justice committee is working on um helping support kevin cooper who's been wrongfully imprisoned and on death row for a really long time um or you know potentially doing like mutual aid serve the people projects or doing coalition work with folks like justice for maria woods etc i think it's a it's it's good to always put the idea out there, but I think right now in terms of what you can actually do about it, it's that there's always going to be, or not always going to be, but like wherever you are, there's 
police brutality happening. There's mass incarceration happening. And I, I think the best thing that for people who do sort of are starting to see the logic of abolition mm-hmm. to do is just plug into plug into those movements like mm-hmm. Mothers on the March, which is at 850 Bryant every Friday, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to talk more to Justice for Mario Woods Coalition, et cetera. If you're, if you're in the East Bay, the Anti-Police Terror Project. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think it, it can take a take a range of forms from direct protests to uh, to like serve the people mutual aid programs. Um, DSA did a bunch of brake light clinics. Oh yeah, that anti police terror project. To their credit, they're the ones who taught us how to do it. <laughs> yeah, um, but a bunch of DSA chapters are are going around and doing that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's the it's most the the most success of I've sort of had is in terms of trying to point out that the nature of the carceral state. To, to people who aren't already dyed in the wool mm-hmm. Marxists um, comes through all of the stuff that's happening like yeah through through me too through what's happening at the border um, and and also just what's happening here in San Francisco every day which people just kind of ignore and walk by every time SFPD is busting up an encampment etc yeah um, there's it there's lots of examples I think to, to kind of that show people how much this is not about justice in any way shape right. or form um but yeah what's the yeah. yeah that that that's my sort of rambling way of saying there's i'm just trying to attack it from all angles yeah i think the thing that comes up for me a lot is that the people in positions of power are the ones who are the ones causing the harm whether it's the war criminals or right, certain people right. being elected into office or some folks in law enforcement exactly like they're the ones who are committing these really heinous crimes in the first place yeah yeah exactly you know getting millions of people killed for yeah. no fucking reason um, yeah, but yeah, there's still, there's still, there's still a long way to go on that. I think it's just, a, it's amazing to me, honestly, how many people have just even taken the existence of ISIS conventional wisdom, like a thing that didn't exist in my living memory. I'm mm-hmm. 28. Like it's existed since I was like, what? 11, like September yeah. 11th. Yeah. After September 11th is when they founded DHS and people are like, well, like we don't, we can just reform do ICE. We don't have to abolish ICE. Like Ugh. I think abolish ICE is only popular with i want to say like 30 percent of democrats or something which means the rest of them are like well ice is really bad we should like make them be good and i was like this shit didn't exist like right 15 years ago what the fuck like you, you don't need this like so that that's 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 really that's really difficult is just the sort of conventional wisdom of like we have to have we have to have prisons for the rapists and the murderers and we have to have borders so we can't let everybody in like yeah yeah that, that's always going to be that's always going to be an issue but it's just trying to target that materially and you know a lot of that that's what those movements are already doing like you know mothers on the march yes mm-hmm. they're they're mothers of people of victims of police brutality or, or relatives of victims of police brutality but they have a concrete demand and it's no new jail shut down the jail at 850 yeah. bryant no new jail and you know um we just need more people joining in that you know that's a that's a that's a local abolitionist demand basically mm-hmm. And I, that's something that is really resonant, and I think that people can, people can plug into and, and show out to support them because they could really use that support. It's another another plug. Yeah. yeah. And you, earlier you mentioned the name Kevin Cooper, and yeah. I'm unfamiliar with Kevin's case. Um. <clears throat> so again, I'm <laughs> going to like probably botch this, but um, yeah, he was basically. I mean, he was he was wrongfully framed for murder, but when he went on trial, even the uh, even the even the judge, I believe, like 
actually said, I don't actually think it was sentencing. Like, I don't actually think this guy did it. I believe they caught some of the uh, cops and prosecutors, uh, like, kind of tampering with evidence. Um, <sighs> but, you know, he was still on death row. There's bas- He's basically been asking... If not for if not for you know clemency, but for at least a new DNA test, mm-hmm. a new DNA test will exonerate him yeah. almost definitely. Um, and you know, speaking speaking of the Democratic Party, um, one of the the, the people who uh, completely ignored his case and for or his request to get a new DNA test in his case for a long time, completely shut it down, was Kamala Harris. Um, and now I think I, I, now I believe she said something about it, um, which was like, yeah, you know, DNA testing for people like Kevin Cooper, because, you know, she has presidential ambitions, but she didn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the good news is I think last week or a couple of weeks ago that uh, Jerry Brown actually did order like as part of his sort of last round of giving clemency to people mm-hmm. and um, was uh, he ordered a new round of DNA testing for him, which is great. And like. It's really it's been really cool as a DSASF our justice committee has been hosting or like they do, they've done a couple things where he'll like live from death row where he'll video conference in and talk to people and answer their questions mm-hmm. and stuff and I'm just like I'm like seriously amazed by his like his resilience he's been in behind bars for a really long time. Yeah. I think longer than I've been alive potentially. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I'm very glad that this new DNA testing was ordered. No thanks to Kamala Harris. Um, yeah. If she brings him up during her campaign, I'm going to be so pissed off. I, I, yeah, I'm not, not a fan of the Democrats here. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, so, I mean, I feel like I should also not have hope or faith in folks who constantly disappoint. And at the same time, there's that part of me that, like, the, the Charlie, Charlie Brown in the football who's like, maybe this time. And then it's like... It's very it's a, rarely. It's okay to be. I don't know. It's okay to be excited about people. Like I get excited about Ocasio Cortez. Yes. Yeah. Same. I do. Like the, some of the stuff she's doing is really exciting. Um. You know. But you know, elected officials are always going to be part of the power structure. Yeah. I, I say this like I'm actually to be make it super uncomfortable now. I'm actually kind of running as one, not really as an elected official, but you know, it, it, I'm running uh, next week as actually as a part of a coalition of like labor folks and some progressive people as like just to be like a delegate it's like a private election you're a delegate to the democratic party and what that basically means is you get to vote on all this stuff Mm -hmm. um you don't get to vote on candidates or like you know like we're not going to it's not about like bernie versus whoever um although i mean i if i have to pick one of them i would pick bernie um but you know it's more about like we you know saying what the california democratic party like they like costa hawkins repeal or mm-hmm. something like that like you know um we, we want universal rent control yeah uh, we want to abolish ice we want a green new deal i mean yeah. that's what we're saying we want to end homelessness homeless sweeps across yes. the state yes so that's that's kind of like what that group of folks is running on but that's yeah. great but yeah it is still going into the the, the maw of the democratic beast right yeah. <laughs> um but uh, but yeah, it's it's always it's it's always like you have to be. We all have to be realistic about you know what elected officials are are gonna do for us. But I think um, the best sort of the best thing quote I kind of heard about that kind of described how I feel sometimes as a fairly pessimistic person as well was from um, Yanis Varoufakis, who's like the old. Uh, he used to be the Greek economy minister. Mm-hmm. I think he was with Syriza, and he kind of like was like, "Let's get the fuck out of here." After this, they kind of after Syriza said we're gonna fight austerity, and then they didn't fight austerity. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that he I heard him say recently was he was like, you know, um, like 
like all elections are betrayals. That doesn't mean that we don't do them. Revolutions eat their own children. That doesn't mean that we don't do them. Mm-hmm. And I think that pretty much sums up how I feel about it. Yeah. 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 That's good. I have to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. I do. And I do feel like there's like anything we can do, like diversity of tactics. Right. In order right. to move things forward. And at the very least, it pushes the other folks, either the more mainstream or centrist, it pushes them leftwards to at least have arguments for right. what should be. Right, right. And I don't think I don't think DSA would have any success as an organization if it didn't embrace a diversity of tactics. Mm-hmm. A diversity of tactics of course doesn't mean like every tent has poles, you know. It doesn't mean like a like diversity of ideology to the point where people are like, Yeah, well I'm a capitalist, but I'm gonna be I'm oh. a capitalist in DSA. <laughs> like, no, you can't be. But um <laughs> But but yeah, we don't really. I, I, we've been a pretty broad organization, and you know, I think we've tried to be more like we, we've tried to keep it that way so that people feel that they can engage with organizing practices and ideas, especially because a lot of people are coming in DSA being like we're like their gateway drug to socialism, mm-hmm. right? Um, coming in sort of having a vague idea of what that is, but maybe not really fully understanding what socialism is, but still being able to plug into plug into stuff and actually, you know, as long as we're thinking about, you know, as long as we have in the background, like, is this building power for the left? Is this building working class power when we do projects, when we organize, you know, that gives people an opportunity to come in and and engage with socialism Mm -hmm. in a way that they probably, and it doesn't, you don't have to like read a set amount of like capital before you, before you sign up. Yeah. Although it's cool if you do. Yes, yes. So for folks who are interested in, in joining up, I know you mentioned that there's a few different committees already, but are there f- ways folks can like tune in either if they're local or... Yeah, I mean, we have lots of... Th- any any sort of direct like actions and stuff we undertake, a lot of them are, are pretty much like open to the public. It's not necessarily like you can't come do... Um, some sort of public work unless you're a member of DSA just Mm -hmm. because we're spearheading the action itself. Um, So, I mean, the easiest thing is just to follow us on social media. We're always constantly talking about ways to get plugged in. For example, you know, one of the things that we tried to do is we did when when Local 2, the hotel workers union, went on the Marriott strike, um, one of the things we tried to do to get DSA to show up for Local 2 um, was a, uh, a, it was like a a first-timers strike challenge. So Mm -hmm. we're like, let's try to get 20 first time strikers those are picket line supporters this yeah. week or whatever um it's just and th- that actually was really effective in getting people to come out and dsa people even like adopted uh a, one picket line somewhere in soma um it, but we go to we go to other ones but it was great because you know people like a lot of people had never been on a picket line before mm-hmm. and they're going to be on a lot more picket lines before <laughs> things are before things get better so yeah um but yeah, but yeah, I think we've always tried to be open in that way and get people to engage with whatever makes them feel what, what makes them feel comfortable, but also what makes them feel uncomfortable, right? Like, but um, and I think as long as we do that, hopefully, you know, we'll continue we'll continue making an impact. But yeah, DSA, it, of course, we're constantly going to have to like we're living under capitalism and we're living in a democratic machine city. Mm-hmm. We have to constantly, you know, be skeptical of ourselves and evaluate evaluate what we're doing but um i think having that strategy of openness but also of doing a lot of community solidarity work with marginalized communities with marginalized groups all over the city and and rooting rooting our coalition building in that i think that's i think that's the way to go and i think hopefully that'll that means we can get a lot more done in the next year 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what's next. Yeah, well, there's lots. Again, we have so many committees. Yeah. There's always something going on at our office. We're at 350 Alabama Street, not too far from Mutiny Radio, actually. Um, But if you follow, yeah, follow us on social media, on Facebook or Twitter, Democratic Socialists of America San Francisco. Um, I think we're DSA underscore SF on Twitter. Um, But we're always posting stuff that people can go to and get involved in. And there's something going on. There's like 10 things going on every day, so... Oh, excellent. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm happy to, you know, share uh, events in the future, too. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. 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 Anything else you'd like to share? Um, no, I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure your listeners probably are preaching to the choir, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a dark time, but I'm really, really, really heartened and amazed by all of the work that DSA has done not just ballot, ballot measures, but like actual like base building and organizing, you know, helping like like helping organize around in, in Bayview, helping complexes like Midtown and the Fillmore, um, which is something I work on a lot from mm-hmm. like, you know, trying to help them support them and not being demolished by the city. Yeah. Um, which they are not being demolished by the city, but the next push is they deserve cooperative ownership. But there, there's always, there's so many things that like are in my head right now that I'm not even mentioning, you know, um, the Lenetic strike, like helping or the you know, local two strike or helping, you know, uh, like like unionized tech workers who got fired or, um, labor solidarity yeah labor solidarity tenant organizing abolitionist organizing you know um showing up against like shitty police policies um there's pretty much any anything you want to do in dsa um you can pretty much do it so that's an excellent plug yeah yeah cool and you mentioned uh the tech workers organizing getting fired can you speak more a bit yeah, about yeah, that? yeah. So um, there was so Lanetics was the name of the company or Lanetix. Maybe I'm saying it wrong, but um, some of their engineers tried to unionize. They basically fired them all. They won. They won a lawsuit. Um, but you know, I think uh, a bunch of DSA folks like sort of marched and, and protested them in solidarity with Tech Workers Coalition, mm-hmm. um, trying to sort of defend their right to organize. You know, again, like it's it, tech workers are incredibly and i used to, i used to be one so that's why i'm saying this but you know the idea of tech workers like there's so little labor solidarity in that sector mm-hmm. and i honestly think that if there were more labor solidarity between tech workers that maybe they would start to under have a little more solidarity with folks outside of the tech industry yeah right it's they're very like it's very atomized like being a tech worker in like silicon valley in the bay area you're very sort of transient like you're here for a few years maybe you get relocated to seattle you're not really invested in your community mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, there are tech workers who are the exception, but they're the exception that proves the rule, right? Including like the folks at Tech Workers Coalition who are amazing. You're starting to see more stuff there with like the Google walkout, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, I think some one of the organizers of Google walkout just quit this week because Google absolutely did not <laughs> do shit. Um, well, you're starting to see that more, but uh, reason I, the reason I'm hopeful about stuff like that is that I actually, I really do think that when you start to when you start to like practice and build solidarity at even the smallest level, like I think you, it does make you a lot more aware of what's going on at a much bigger level. Um, which hopefully, I think, as someone who works and does a lot, a lot of anti gentrification solidarity work with mm-hmm. DSA, is a lot of what like what I do personally. Um, it is I think incredibly important because a lot of people just do not fucking get it. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and I was also thinking recently about the that Google was I think I forget how many billions of dollars that they are keeping offshore, like in Bermuda oh, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Which is not a surprise. And then it's also thinking about how uh, Muni could be totally not only could workers from Muni get raises, but like Muni could be free for everyone if oh, these tech God. companies paid their taxes. Or if yeah, or if we could tax the 70 billionaires that live in the walls of San borders of San Francisco alone. Yeah. That was I mean, yeah, the the Muni I mean, as you know, like we actually in our labor history class we were both in together the the head of the Muni Workers Union or Drivers Union was there in in there as well and like hearing from him was just like really really illuminating especially because I even I I tend, obviously I like to think I'm aware of this of shit like this, but I did not realize how little Muni drivers were getting paid even like and it's absolutely squarely on like the responsibility of, you know, the guy, the supervisor at the time in 2010, who's now coming back as Mayor Breed's chief of staff, Sean mm. Ellsburn, and then Spur, which is like this urbanist think tank yeah. that has a lot of cachet in like, you know, we're like, we talk about housing and equitable development and stuff like that. And, you know, like, it's like, it's like, and, you know, they're like the policy. They have this very shiny reputation as a policy think tank. They have these like lavish parties and everything, Oof. like panels and stuff like that. Like, yeah, they have like a really sweet. Sweet setup. They get a lot of money. It's coming. I believe some of it comes from developers. But anyway, um, but the Spur and Ellsburn like put this ballot measure forward in 2010, and they 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 lied. They lied to people. They told people with this proposition. They were like, "Listen, like it's a recession, and the muni workers are getting a raise, and no one else was getting a raise." Mm -hmm. And they said that's not fair. So that's how they marketed it. And the muni, um, the raises, the pay raises were basically baked into the city charter, which other public sector union workers raises weren't. But the Muni Workers Union was like, we're fine with taking it out of the charter. So that's not really what it was. They were saying, oh, they were trying to like basically say, oh, it's a recession. Everyone's suffering, but these guys are suffering slightly less. So let's make them suffer as much as the rest of us. And, you know, they promised Spur, you know, being like the transit wonk, you know, think tank, whatever the fuck. Or like, oh, there's this community's gonna flourish. You're gonna see so much new service, etc. We're we're gonna have a but we're gonna get out of a budget hole, and everything will be like it's gonna be amazing. And they sold it that way, and they sold it on the point that oh, it's not fair that the these guys get a raise guaranteed in the city charter, and no one else does. Um, and even though that's not the part that they objected to, the part that the unions correctly objected to was that they put in all of these provisions and like that that were like you have to accept forced private arbitration and all this bullshit, which is what they really wanted to do. Like, they wanted to crush unions or whatever. I mean, and it passed. And since then, it's been harder and harder. Like, they just shoved this private arbitration down muni workers' throats to the point mm. where, like, if you're a muni driver, you can't, you, you get paid, like, $36,000. You don't get paid the full salary you're supposed to make until, like, I think it was, like, it used to be 18 months, and now it's five years. <sighs> and, like, that's how it went from, from 2010 to 2018. And it's absolutely related to that, to that stuff. And, you know, this guy is back in the mayor's office. Mm -hmm. Spur is, like, you know, with the rise of the, the Yimby, you know, quote-unquote movement or whatever, mm -hmm. um, is they still have as much cachet, they have as much access to the halls of power as they've ever had. Um, they have as much money as they ever had. And like, you know, for, for the leading voice on housing and transit, some sort of ostensibly independent think tank, like they absolutely should be held to account for the like absolute malfeasance. Like we're seeing muni shortages like we've never seen before because there's no incentive for a driver to live in San Francisco. Right, right. And 
do all of that work, um, which is a really hard job. Um, and you know, people, there's no, the retention's gone down, all of that's gone down. And it's, it's because of, it's classic union busting, but Mm -hmm. it's like classic union busting from like sort of the, the people like occupying the mayor's office and the people who are supposedly the experts on housing and transit policy. And like, yeah, they, they absolutely like not enough, you know, when I was researching this stuff, I, I was just like flabbergasted by like reading about what this campaign was like. And, you know, they, they should absolutely because it's it's the now that's 2019 and the muni drivers uh, all the public sector unions contracts are up mm-hmm. and Sean Ellsburn as as mayor Breed's chief of staff is going to be the guy who's going to be negotiating with them so i mean that's something that i think we all have to be on high alert on because you know if they try to screw private work private or public sector workers once they'll absolutely do it or all the time yeah. you know the sort of chamber of commerce sf association of realtors moderate sort of loose or not loose but like you know kind of formation that's been there through all of san francisco's history like they're gonna they're absolutely gonna try that shit again um and like we definitely have to be on red alert but yeah as as someone whose personal like interests or like someone whose issue is housing mm-hmm. um and and transit it's like absolutely <laughs> fucking nuts to me that these people are still running around scot free um after after being entirely responsible for like a, basically a public transit death spiral yeah in a city whose population's been steadily growing. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I lived in New York for a while, and hearing about what's happening with the subway there, and it's different since, since the MTA is more of a monopoly, um, right. but it's still, it's just, you can really see the the rise in the, the ride-sharing, I would say, in quotation marks. Right, you know, like Those right. private companies yeah. uh, being made to be alternatives to uh, public transit when public transit has been around for so much longer and which is yeah and it, I mean I wonder how much like those all of those like Uber and Lyft and stuff like their all of their rides are subsidized by gobs and gobs and gobs of venture capital money I think they someone said every Uber ride is subsidized by 40% wow by venture capital money they don't even like that people are like yeah like people let's defend uber and lyft and everything it was like for the all obviously their labor practices are shit and they help drive drivers into debt and all of that stuff too but it's extra funny to me because i'm like even if you're like the most pro like tech guy capitalist whatever like they don't turn a profit like they're literally mm-hmm. just they just soak up money like uber most of all but yeah i i just always think that's funny it's like same thing with this company like amazon amazon's never turned a profit like right like it's just um so i'm saying even if you're like this big capitalist whatever guy and you're like you can't even like (laughs) you're like justifying these behemoths who exploit their workers and don't even like turn return a profit like they're like why uh yeah i it's just amazing what they what they overlook but yeah i mean going back to the public transit thing like it's absolutely there is a there and especially for you know if you're a woman for example or like if you just and any any group where you might feel unsafe at a certain place at mm-hmm. night or something like by yourself waiting at a bus stop for like 45 minutes for a bus, you know, then you're going to be like, I'm going to take an Uber yeah. or a lift home. That's yeah. a totally rational decision to make. I think Joe Fitz from the examiner reported on mm-hmm. it recently where he called it the, the pink tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a real thing, but it's not the muni driver's fault. It's the people, it's the people who are actually in charge of, of our city government. And the fact that though the people who are responsible for that decision are back after eight years, like does not make, me feel confident um it makes me feel like we're probably going to need to bring more attention to this issue and 
and, and kind of stand with the mutiny workers and fight them this year. But yeah, I'm excited. I always like yelling at people. I wouldn't be in DSA otherwise. That's great. I have the urge to yell at people, and I mostly yell into the microphone. So I appreciate folks who. Well, you can always show up, and it's good to yell at people in numbers. Yeah. Oh, that I do. Feel better. That's true. I guess I just yeah. I don't do it on my own, but I do it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I did. Groups. I did yell at one and breathe through a bullhorn. Oh wow! This year, which was. I don't think she was happy about it. So, yeah. but otherwise I also do most of my yelling in groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can be very cathartic. Yeah, it can be. Yeah. <laughs> and I also just want to do a brief mention or plug for Homobiles, which has been a, a ride service that's been around for a while. And that's for uh, queer folks who are looking for rides and it's donation based. Oh, that's so, awesome. Yeah. It was, it was created before Lyft and Uber and all those. And their idea was kind of taken. Really? From I did not them. know that. Yeah. Damn. So yeah, Lenny Breedlove from uh, Tribe 8 was one of the folks who created it and was really just making sure that there are folks who oftentimes, especially like leaving late, coming home from, you know, bars or clubs, especially if if folks are, you know, sometimes their folks are in drag or or not. Oh, that's Um, awesome. So it's providing safe rides for people, um, not based on income or any of that. All right. I'm definitely going to plug that everywhere. Yeah. Homemobiles. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Great. Well, uh, if there's anything else you'd like to, to share before we... Yeah, we've got time. So. No, it's fuck capitalism. That's <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> indeed. That's one of the themes of the show on every show is, is fuck capitalism and how do we create the world without it? Yep. <laughs> so. Working on it. Indeed. Well, thanks so much for being here. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And feel free to come back and also uh invite other dsa folks anytime there'll be a lot more of us soon yay looking forward to it all right so we're gonna play some more music and we'll be wrapping up the show in just a bit uh stay tuned
and welcome back to the weekly review. We are we are finishing up the show. Big thank you to Shanti Singh for coming in and speaking about the work of the uh, DSA in San Francisco, as well as a lot of other organizations that are taking part right now and have been taking part in 2018. If you'd like more information. <laughs> Uh, please check out dsasf.org. Again, dsasf.org. There's also DSA chapters around the country. So if you are living outside the Bay Area, there may be one near you. Also, you can follow DSASF on Twitter as well. And their Twitter handle is at DSA underscore SF. We'll be back next week with another show. More information and more music. Thanks again so much for listening in. There are shows here seven days a week at Mutiny Radio, every day of the week. If you're interested in having a show here of your own, please contact Pam, who's a station director. You can find that all that information at mutinyradio.fm. Come here, have a show of your own. It's totally open, free speech. We also do space rentals here as well. So if that's something you're interested in, to do a live broadcast or a concert or a poetry reading or a fundraiser or anything. We even have a we have a projector here, I believe, so you can also do a screening here. That's also a possibility. Please do get in touch. Thanks so much for the folks who contribute uh, regularly regularly to the show. We have a Patreon that's up at patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. Super grateful for all the folks who contribute. Uh, if you're interested, again, the Patreon is patreon.com forward slash weekly rev. The funds go to pay for the dues for the show and uh, keeps the doors open. Really appreciate all the folks who help out. Also, thanks to the listeners out there. Thanks to the folks living your lives. It's not easy. There's a lot of things to be frustrated and angry about. And at the same time, there are so many beautiful things that are happening right now and amazing people out there in the world. So thanks for doing what you do and thanks for listening in. And I believe women's magazine with global Val and common thread collective will be back next week. And if you're interested in checking out any archive shows, we have them at mutinyradio.fm. We've got archives of shows that are currently on the air shows that were previously on the air. And I believe there will be some other, we have also another set of archives that will be uploaded at some point. That would be great. So thanks again for listening. And I will uh, share another B-52 song with you all playing quite a few songs here off uh, cosmic thing, their 1989 release. And this song is uh, at the end of the album, and it's called Follow Your Bliss. So hope everyone is able to follow your bliss this week. And take care, everyone.
Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento honestly is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays, Taco Tuesdays, First Wednesday live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is darn good special happy hour prices all night long with your mutiny radio comedy festival ticket march 1st through 5th check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com come take a seat i had a date there and it did not go well but it wasn't the fault of the place they're very nice asiento For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Everybody should listen to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Subliminal SF Visual and Auditory Mind Control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF.
yeah. Welcome. Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5. Bender's brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, Punk Rock and Schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter-offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Bender's is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive